0: This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne,
1: truly independent community radio. Hello, and welcome to Backstory, the show about books the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. On today's show, I have a couple of amazing guests. Later this hour, Ginny Maxwell, co-editor of The Lifted Brow, will be in to talk about the last edition of that thoughtful and sassy journal, And earlier this year, Ginny Pender considered and beautifully rendered take in the Saturday paper entitled Labour Failures in the Arts Industry, looking at the systemic underpayment or lack of payment of arts workers and how we are co-opted into this continued exploitation. It's an important piece, uh, one that I really thought, I think, uh, deserves to be considered and reconsidered and one that I'm really surprised hasn't been sort of talked about more or actually written about more. It's an incredibly important piece. But coming up, uh, a precocious young woman coming of age in mid-19th century Scotland and a dying man in a time just beyond now are linked by a strange piece of experimental technology. Their psyche, shame, hope and longing binding together across literary and psychological terrain well worth exploring. This is all from the extraordinary mind of Angela Meyer, whom many may know as the power House Publisher at Echo Press. She'll be in to talk about her beautifully crafted debut novel, A Superior Spectre.
0: Three, triple...
1: You're listening to 3 R. The show is Backstory. I'm Mel Cranenberg. And in a not-too-distant future, a middle-aged man, Jeff, has fled to the Scottish Highlands to die in isolation he feels that he deserves. But he's not really alone, as well as his Android server and serve, William, he's haunted by Leonara, a young woman coming of age in 1860s Scotland, and somehow he comes to haunt her. This is all from the wonderful mind of Angela Meyer and part of her debut novel, A Superior Spectre. Angela joins me in the studio now. Angela, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much, Mel. It's great to be here. I am really intrigued by this incredibly well-crafted story. It's a story of a mutual haunting Uh, of psychology, a woman struggling for sexual and intellectual autonomy in quite a literal way. Talk to me about where this idea filtered through from. Uh,
0: So many places, but it all coalesced uh, at the Edinburgh Book Festival in 2013 and a a longer uh, trip I did around then, which is about a five-month trip, mostly in Scotland, working... Uh, at various guest houses and staying at places all over Scotland with my uh, ex-partner, Jared Elson, who used to be on the yes. show. He's a very familiar uh, yeah. voice. Um, I really wanted to explore uh, Scotland. I'm a, I just fell in love with the place the very first time I went there and this story was just always set there, but it's all from, you know, the head of an Australian man going over there. So I had that sort of outsider looking in way of looking at it.
1: There's a real richness and love of Scotland that filters all the way through this uh, you know from the dialect to the food to the landscape. Uh, It's really infiltrating every single part of this story and it should be something remarked upon as well because that's that's a particular delight in this tale but this relationship between two people and Mm. particularly one that's you know somewhat I wouldn't say um, symbiotic more predatory in a sense. Yeah Um, it's invasive It's invasive and I I think as a metaphor, actually, for how, um, you know, women are controlled and invaded. And, and you know, I, I think even just the voyeuristic element of that as well is really interesting. Talk to me about that side of things. Uh, and in fact, if you could set up uh, the story a little bit uh, more clearly than perhaps I sure. have, it would be wonderful. No,
0: you did a great job. But um, so Jeff is an Australian man. He's, he's dying and he runs away to the Scottish Highlands with an experimental technology that allows him to enter the mine of someone in the past and that it, it is an experimental stage so he doesn't know what the full risks of the technology are and he ends up sort of tripping into the mind of Leonora, uh, about a 19-year-old Scottish woman sort of coming of age. And her chapters are when she, there is sort of gothic, they're when she becomes aware of his presence and, of course, doesn't know what to do with that and being a woman and not much room for a expression in a lot of ways, you know, she thinks she's sort of going mad. Um, so there's the two distinct kind of voices. Uh, I don't know how I sort of brought them together. They seem to come to me separately and, mm. um, yeah, I agree that there's an exploration of sort of predation through Jeff, but I did not realise I was doing that. It sounds really silly. But until I'd sort of done a first draft of the novel, I was like, oh, it's a man entering a woman's head. You know, I I, I honestly,
1: that just sort of naturally happened that I was exploring that. Um, but he's quite a Nabokovian character himself, isn't yes. he? This sort of uh, both self-hatred and self-justification for who he is um, in well, a way. I very much
0: wanted to write an unreliable narrator. So this this was a kind of challenge I set myself because I love books that do that and that sort of really tickle your brain in a way when you don't know that what they're telling you um, is the truth or not. And because I'm actually a really honest person and I find it really, really difficult to lie. It was, I, I like the idea of challenging myself to write someone. And there were so many times when I was writing it where I had to push myself and to, to make him more unreliable. So you didn't quite know what was what, really.
1: Yeah, I think you did a really beautiful job of it. I know we've been quite oblique, but there is a lot in this book that unravels as you go along and neither of us really want to give away too much, I'm sure too. But there's this wonderful sort of, you know, it's more than just a time slippage. And I think that the clue to what you're trying to get at is, of course, in the title of the book, A Superior Spectre, mm. which is taken from a poem that you actually inscribe at the start of the book, which is in Emily Dickinson's uh, poem, the complete, uh, from the complete poems uh, and in it, you sort of get the sense of, you know, the real ghosts we have are the ghosts within and they are by far and away the superior specter over an external haunting. And you've taken that step a step beyond that because in a sense, you know, this man who is, you know, haunting uh, a woman in the past and, you know, being haunted by her, you know, this sense of us being, you know, controlled by external psyches in a a way that we internalise. I thought that this, I haven't seen a rendering that really moved me to that extent because i'm like yes we've got internalized patriarchy mm-hmm. um, you've sort of shown it in this way but um and the way i wanted to yeah. do that
0: partly was by making the reader sort of sit uncomfortably within jeff's head while he's sitting within leonora's yeah. head and so i'm yeah i'm sort of playing with the idea of reading itself and how it can affect and shape us and uh, i i i I guess I find it kind of amusing that as the the author I'm I'm a bit Jeff-like in that way in that I'm being I don't know it made me think about the whole act of writing itself and what an author intends to do um
1: By sort of infecting the mind of the reader. Exactly. And I think you do use that term, infecting Mm -hmm. the mind throughout. There's also a lot of literary references throughout here that are forever reminding us uh, that, you know, this is a work of literature, even though they're so beautifully wound in. And you do play with the form a lot. I think there's a wonderful moment in the book where, Jeff, who you sort of think is the narrator, he's originally the first-person perspective. Uh, When we meet Leonora, it's very much the third person as a description of a past time, very much like an, you know, a sort of all-seeing, omniscient narrator. Uh, But suddenly, you know, early on in the book, Jeff says, "I you know, kind of owns that he's been narrating this to his android which is recording it and uh, suddenly changes the narrative about Leonora into the first person and suddenly we're in her head it was a really artful way of sort of you know using literary devices and also winding them into the story Uh, I thought this was incredibly clever. Thank you I almost didn't do that because I was
0: very scared to do that from I mean, you just don't change a character from third person to first person, but because it actually made sense for him to basically tell the reader that now I'm going to render this story to you in a way that helps you to experience it the way that I'm experiencing it, then, you know, I'm able to do that. But of course, there's more questions raised about who was telling
1: the story, but I won't go on about that. No, but it's very cleverly done, I think, as well, and and it does kind of give the other character agency in a way that it wouldn't. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't make you think about the choices that authors make when it comes to voice, uh, and, you know, why certain uh, subjects, I guess, are rendered as first person and others as third person. I also thought a lot about the fact that, and, you know, I don't know whether or not this was something you were aiming to do, that you know, a lot of us have grown up reading female characters through the eyes of an of a male author That's right. and how they've been viewed that way. Is that something you were thinking about while you were writing?
0: Yeah, I guess something that's interesting on
1: that part is
0: that Jeff is quite a... He's a difficult and, and a hateful character at times and he is predatory, as you say. But also one thing that was interesting when I was writing it was that I wrote a lot of myself into him and I hoped that he would sort of be empathetic... As well, although I, I think the reader reactions have been quite divided on this, and, so, and I think some people don't want to empathise with him, yeah. just because I, I give him a very particular, very difficult kind of um, aberrant desire that he has, that he's sort of got the shame that he's facing. Um, but part of why I did that was quite deliberately to um, to. Sorry, I've totally lost my train of thought.
1: <laughs> well, I, I mean, I have to say all great art does this. Mm. It should make you feel uncomfortable. And I think by putting you in a position where you're actually in the brain of someone that you don't naturally empathise with, you know, it really does make you question, yeah, you know, I this nature black and Yeah, I guess that's nature, what I was sort
0: of saying, but yeah, it's, it's, we're questioning that and it's, I guess in a way, while he's being forced to empathise with a woman, like he's experiencing her menstrual cramps. He's experiencing her orgasm. um, He's experiencing all of her challenges as a woman of her time. uh, But he doesn't necessarily learn from it. And that's also why I had, and again, I didn't really deliberately do this, but I realised afterwards um, that he he has this particular aberrant desire that would affect a certain group of people if he had acted upon it. And yet he's continually tripping into the mind this mind of this young woman and he's run away from a woman who loved him he's also got a woman sort of nearby him in the narrative and the consequences for all of them could be quite devastating in terms of his actions but he doesn't feel as much shame over that he doesn't think those actions through in the same way he doesn't beat himself up over them so I guess I wanted to have this it's it's a man with experiencing self-loathing over himself. But is it over the
1: right... There's something it, very selfish about it, I yeah, have to say. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's beautifully rendered. If you've just joined us in your wondering uh, what we're talking about, uh, the show is Backstory. I'm Mel Cranenberg. Uh, we're discussing A Superior Spectre with author Angela Meyer. It's a wonderful Book a, a real literary exploration, uh, you know, of how we are colonised by the things that we read, uh, you know, and also how, I guess, you know, through the eyes of a of a man who is haunting a woman, um, you know, we can both gain empathy and lose empathy when we're in in this kind of viewpoint. Uh, Angela, I do want to talk to you a little bit about, um, you know, obviously constructing, uh, you know, this book. At, but also how this has been for you, because I think many uh, listeners to Triple R will know you more as a publisher, as mm-hmm. a uh, publisher at Echo Press. What is it like stepping over the line again? You've always been a writer, of course, yes. and you've always been a great reader. Many of you will have, you know, been long-term readers of your, your blog, uh, Literary Minded, uh, But I think, you know, what is it like now to fully embrace being an author in this respect? Do you have to put aside some of your preconceptions? Do you have to... What do you need to do to stop yourself from from over-criticising, I guess? Because that's one of the things Mm. that sometimes stops us from writing.
0: I have to have a really clear divide between um, writing time and work time. And I work full-time, but when I was finishing the novel, I was part-time at ECHO. And so at the moment, I only write on Saturday morning. So I just, I have this clear time where I very deliberately compartmentalise myself and I switch off my mind from other things. And to go into a first draft, it is like that's the art part of it where you have to let go. And actually in the novel, I'm quite interested in ideas of control and letting go. So there's that whole theme within it as well. Uh, Whereas in the work environment, you have to be the more kind of rational. But it's interesting because I do the structural work on um, a lot of manuscripts and work very closely with authors on the developmental stages. Sometimes those skills, my writing skills, actually come into it and not just not writing skills as in being invasive with the manuscript. There's, there's the word invasive again. But the, the skills like that that writers have to develop, like empathy and... Um, this sort of probing what you're trying to really get at with the text, things like that. So that's actually really helpful for my work as a publisher. My writing – I would call them my my writing
1: skills, part of my writing –
0: repertoire (laughs) yeah that's great Um,
1: because i think look i mean there was a real risk i guess with this book as well that it would be overly analytical because you know there's a lot of mm. analysis in there but you have let it you know you've made sure that the story is very tightly wound around it um there isn't there aren't many words that have been you know deployed without reason in here uh and it's and even the way in which uh you've crafted things the the you know, the chapters uh, have different lengths and become mm-hmm. slightly more staccato as you go along. The The perspectives change and, and morph and absorb some of these notions of, of narrative construction. Thank you. Did you work, how do you feel about, I guess, working with another editor in this context? Because when you are yourself an editor, and let's face facts, we are all Uh, editors and writers in our turns you are literally one though Mm -hmm. Uh, so how did that happen and how did that work did you find that you could like cede some control in that in that respect
0: yeah um so yeah like as you say it's a novel of ideas but I'm very interested in form and I and and the sentences and the structure of novels uh and working with an editor first of all by the time it got picked up for publication. I'd worked on it a lot. So I'd gone over it many times. So uh, by the time I got an agent, Martin Shaw, he said it was very, thought it was very polished. Uh, And then when it got published and I was, I first had a round with Peter Bishop, who Peter Bishop Books is the imprint with Ventura that it's published with. And he was wonderful because all he did and this is, if anyone knows Peter Bishop, who used to be at Veruna Writers House will know this, all he does is have conversations with you and, and he recommended some books and just sort of broke open a few of the ideas to push them a little bit further in the book. So that's what he did. So it's not really a structural editor. I don't know what you would call it, a <laughs> wonderful process, human process. And then I had a copy edit from Kate Goldsworthy, who is Wonderful, and I got to suggest the editor. So I very, I'm very lucky with that because I've worked with her at work, uh, at Echo, and I know how great she is. And it was, it's always challenging, I think, to work with an editor because they point out to you all the things that you got wrong or that could be improved. And that's just as a human thing. You're like, oh dear. But I wanted her because I knew she would be so thorough. And so you want to have gone through that. So by the time it's in the world, you can be really proud of it and know that you've done as much as possible at that point in time, you know, for it to be something that could be read by others.
1: It's so wonderful to be able to get to talk to an author about these things, Angela, and I know you've come on. This very uh, station before to talk about such things in your capacity as as an editor and publisher mm-hmm. with another author, but you know it is. I'm not going to call this as collaborative a process as some might be. Uh, obviously, in in the sense that you've just described it, it's a conversation many times. Yes, but I think it is part of that process that really should be talked about. Uh, we are going to have another guest coming on uh, to talk about you know the vast you know under or devaluation I guess or undervaluation mm. of uh, of arts workers and their role in the industry and I think quite often when you look at a book you don't see the incredible work that goes into it behind the scenes those relationships that are formed with uh, publishers and editors and writers and you see this fully formed book even I suppose when when authors are sort of portrayed on screen I guess it's this this lone suffering writer with with no one else and certainly that's a part of the process but you know obviously these structures <clears throat> and these workers are very much a part of it. So thank you for revealing some of that.
0: That's okay. It, it fascinates me as well, that sort of relationship between writer and editor and obviously, yeah, having been on both sides. And every book that I've worked on as a publisher, the relationship and the process has been entirely different. And I guess that's where it can get murky if you were going to talk about the role of the editor more or because sometimes the editor doesn't actually have that much input and other times they have a great deal and nobody would know which book was which like no. absolutely and it's so it's not really up to the editor to like it's up to the author if they want to explain or, or talk about that I, I guess absolutely um, and I know I've yeah been that way with my authors I yeah I would if they would like to talk about it, I'm happy to sort of join in. But, yeah, it's, I, would, I happily will talk about, you know, Peter and Kate and the influence they had on this book in bringing it out and tidying it up and sort of making it what it is now.
1: Well, it's, a, it's a, a great testament to some wonderful literary creation. Uh, a Superior Spectre by Angela Meyer out now through Ventura. It's a, a really great book. Uh, one, uh, you know, uh, we were talking about this a little bit off air. I've talked to other people about this the Australian publishing industry really does need more richness and and diversity and voices um, coming out and and books that challenge the sort of literary norms of this country. I think this is one of those books. Congratulations on a wonderful job. Thank you so much. This
0: is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7
1: FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're listening to 3RRR's Backstory with Mel Cranenberg and I'm joined today by Ginny Maxwell who is one of the editors of The Lifted Brow which is definitely one of my favourite publications I have to say but we have brought Ginny in today to talk about an amazing article that was published earlier this year by the Saturday paper entitled Labour Failures in the Arts Industry. I have been dying to talk to Ginny about <laughs> this. So Ginny, thank you so much for joining us on Backstory today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really lovely to be here. Look, it's, um, it's very rare actually that we get to talk to people who are working in the arts about some of the sort of, I guess, darker sides of the industry. All of us really do like to talk up the wonderful work that's done. And that's because wonderful work is done. Countless hours of labour, many of them unpaid, go into making this industry that that really matters so deeply. Without people in the arts, we wouldn't have the arts. It's just very clearly the message. So talk about this article, uh, you know, where it came from and some of the major themes that you're covering throughout it. Uh,
2: Well, I think that article came primarily from conversations I had uh, that happened between me and my fellow co-director of National Young Writers Festival, which is a volunteer-run festival, uh, Maggie Thompson, um, with both of us trying to come to grips with the fact that, you know, we were both desperately burning out working, you know, National Young Writers Festival takes about 25 hours a week on an easy week, um, completely unpaid, uh, and we were completely burning out and every time we talked to anyone about it, they were like, yeah, of course, <laughs> we've all done it. We're all doing it. It's awful for for all of us too. And whenever we tried to come at solutions or broaden the conversation, like broaden or deepen the conversation, there was some pushback um, or defensiveness around it. Uh, and I really wanted to break through that because I think, you know, as much as the arts is sort of an industry defined by how it, blurs the line between personal and professional and passionate, I guess. Um, it's a job.
1: But <laughs> That's this is also job. something that you criticise in this article, which is that, you know, literally there is no, no division between your work and your your social life in, in these industries. So, it, essentially, there's no boundary there, which means that you are working all the time and you describe this in very clear terms both personal and you know really delving into the political and it made me think uh, reading through some of the things that you've said uh, which were really interesting which is this notion of love being the currency I guess we of course love it and therefore don't need to be paid the fact that in a sense uh, arts workers are themselves co-opted into this uh the, the fact of privilege in some sense is allowing this and I think you rendered that really beautifully talking about this being an industry heavily dominated by cis white um, women um, who are both privileged and also by virtue of their gender being co-opted into this notion that they are supposed to happily, you know, render their work for nothing. It actually made me think about a section in um, in Elif Batterman's... Um, Rent a Family article that appeared in the New Yorker where she talks about, you know, this industry in Japan which seems kind of extraordinary uh, where, you know, people are paid to do things that are traditional family functions like, I don't know, um, you know, be someone's dad for a day <laughs> or turn up and cry at a funeral. Um, but she she points out that that these notions of family doing things for nothing are relatively modern phenomenon and that actually, you know, this is a way in which, um, you know, work that, that women often do at home uh, is not you know given a monetary value. Essentially, people are, are doing this for nothing. I thought the parallels between in the art this and the arts industry were really interesting ones. Where do you think this has come from, and how do you think this is being perpetuated now?
2: I think one of the problems is that people you mentioned privilege before, um, and the arts is an incredibly privileged sphere. Any any sphere that like is based and like founded in unpaid labour, you know draws privileged people to it because they're the only people who can survive it um, but I think one of the problems in the arts is that this idea of privileged is you privilege is used to shut conversations down instead of opening them up so instead of conversations which I actually really found in response I found in response to this article like in the response to this article too um, if people start complaining about the difficulties of working in the arts, the response is like, but you're lucky. Like, you're so lucky to be here. Rather than if I, <laughs> if I, an incredibly lucky person, am still struggling this much, imagine all of these people who have no access to this. How can we, like, how, rather than resting on our laurels and accepting it, like, how can we, you know, be motivated to find, like, to find some form of structural change
1: yeah, absolutely. And if you, you are made to feel as though, therefore, you're not considering the art and the, and that that is an imperative above all else. And you do talk about that. But there was also a really interesting point in your article where you sort of say, you know, you feel as though at a, to to a certain extent that, and I, I think I can quote you here, sometimes I feel, as though, I feel as though everyone in the arts is functionally a scab, myself included. <laughs> and I think that's a really interesting, and I don't want this to be read out of context, um, you know, but you're sort of talking about this within the context of being someone who is programming an arts festival. And you say, how can I program? Events about unionisation and artists as workers, knowing that the organisation at which I work is volunteer run, and look, I do think that there is a place for volunteerism. Certainly, here I am at Triple R as a volunteer uh, announcer. But again, the inherent privilege of being able to to do that or afford the time to do that, you know, is an interesting one. And what does that then mean for those who are excluded because they can't afford to do that?
2: Yeah. To be clear, I'm not against volunteering. what bothers what like frightens me is the idea that there are organizations that require so much of their workers and off actually offer relatively little you know in terms of even support <laughs> even support in the role um and and you can continue like that for years you know.
1: Absolutely and I do have to say having come from you know doing not-for-profit work especially I, I remember being at a particular conference that I shan't name uh, where you know people who are extremely well-intentioned were talking about how their business model was perhaps not to pay writers uh, and give them you know a uh, they would write for nothing. That would be how they would produce these publications. And I was saying, how can you help one group by exploiting another? And surely, you know, a utopian model has to consider all of these elements. If we are in a capitalist society, which sadly we find ourselves in, uh, that means that I think we have to consider all of these things. Do you see a way forward with this? For arts organisations, as you say, when everyone is deeply mired in this sort of model where, where things are run on on such a tiny budget because the presumption is that you will get volunteer arts workers. How do you change that? How do you take the time to change that?
2: I mean, I wish I had all the answers. Uh, What I can say is um, so much of the problem is funding, Like, like like current funding models and arts funding in general on like a federal level. There is so... The money really isn't there and I do understand that and corporate sponsorship isn't always the answer it's co- it's a very it's a complex issue um I would never want to diminish that but I think starting to have these conversations um I made a commitment at the beginning of this year that I would always talk about money <laughs> yes. just because people feel so alone I think mm. in like when you're not aestheticizing your burnout or joking about it with your friends, you're actually just burning out and broke, <laughs> and that feels so awful and so and it's hard not to blame yourself because everybody else, obviously, you don't get a glimpse into their interiority, so everyone around you seems to be doing fine. So I'm really committed to talking more um, just about money in the arts and about well-being. I think in the arts because I don't think any of us can come to any, uh, solutions on our own.
1: No, I agree with that. Mm. And I think that also, as you say, opening up a conversation, really demystifying some of these things. It's like people, um, who are saying that, you know, on Instagram, when someone, you know publishes stuff about getting a new house they should admit how much money they got from their parents to buy it I feel as though to a certain extent that also should be talked about in the arts many of us you know have been able to get to a certain place because we had inherent privilege to do so or actually were helped to be supported to to remain in an industry either through other work or through other you know mechanisms whether that be parental support or partner support we don't talk about that
2: I saw a um panel about freelancing a little while ago and realised that every person on the panel was supported by
1: their parents or a partner. It's <laughs> yeah. like, but of course, like, but, of course. Well, it's it's a great kind of unspoken element of the publishing industry and why it can, can run on these models. Ginny, I really welcome these conversations, but I do I do want to touch a little bit on the Lifted Brown. We should mention that um, that while you have recently joined the editorial committee, this is one of the last editions or the last edition, I believe.
2: Yeah, it's Annabelle Brady-Brown's last issue and what an issue it is.
1: <laughs> it, really, <laughs> it really is fantastic. Um, I have to own that I did uh, for an, another podcast talk about one of the articles in this uh, basically Marxist analysis of the rise of active wear by Lauren Carroll Harris, which I recommend highly, uh, I have to admit to being a slight devotee to some forms of active wear. I do <laughs> feel suitably um, you know, chastened by some elements of this article. It's, it's really worth reading. It raises elements of you know how how neoliberalism manages to get its tendrils into every corner of life. Absolutely.
2: Um, I think this issue as a whole, it's so interesting because we're in the middle of copy editing the next issue and um, Annabelle mentions in uh, the editorial for this issue that it's very much, it's a very zeitgeisty one (laughs) and it really is. Like so many of the pieces, uh, like, you know, there's an amazing piece by Dion about uh, Queer Eye um, and the idea of, yeah, that's sort of this the history is, of that show
1: and... Um, this is You Better Work by Dion Kagan. Yeah. And everyone... I Look, I don't know about you, but I am so... I, I feel like I'm completely uncritical of this show recently. <laughs> like, it's it's one of those things that you know the artfulness of how it's been designed... ...but completely. it still completely works on you. It's amazing. 100%. Yeah, this, there's a really interesting element. What else has kind of captured you in this edition, Ginny? Hmm.
2: Um... I mean, to be honest, I would read absolutely anything Jana Perkovic, Perkovic wrote, and this column, the critic in the episode, the criticism is absolutely no exception. Um, I think, and you know, we can't. We can't talk about this issue without talking about Stephen (laughs) Fam's "Long Reads: Centering the Crush, the Ephemeral Joy of Carly Rae Jepsen."
1: (laughs) Before we launch into that, I have to let people know uh, you are listening to Backstory on Three Triple R. The today's guest, uh, Ginny Maxwell, is one of the editors of Lifted Brow. We're talking about the latest edition, uh, the last by outgoing editor Annabelle Brady Brown, uh, and a wonderful piece, "Centering the Crush, the Ephemeral Joy of Carly Rae Jepsen," by Stephen Fam. Stephen is quite a voice uh, in Australian letters. Uh, I just... I don't quite know how to describe this, but it sort of starts off as a bit of a, um, you know, biographical piece about uh, his breakup with a recent ex who doesn't fare too well on the page, I have to say, and then winds into this amazing defence of Carly Rae Jepsen who is, if one is to believe, uh, Stephen Pham, a great uh, unsung genius. Um, (laughs) I just, I didn't know where to go with this piece, but I just thought it was masterful and, and extraordinary. Um, and it's sort of weirdly tied in with uh, a story, Psychic Bogan, by um, Monica it, um It's just amazing. Elia, sorry. Which is it kind of weirdly had these strange zeitge- zeitgeisty elements Completely. to it. Completely. About sort of, you know, racial sort of... Um, intersectionality and uh, even strangely enough a, a trip to Macca's and a breakup so that it was a bit strange uh, how that happens sometimes. I think when I was an editor as well I found this that you don't even know how it happens because you haven't deliberately curated something but somehow or the other the combination of elements you find all these little pieces of, of you know ephemera that everyone has managed to put in at the same time. Yeah, and
2: commonality it's very strange. What do you think that is? You know, I don't know. I feel like, um, I think definitely with this with this issue, part of it is um, one of the great things about having like a long print cycle. Um, I've never worked on anything where you can just take your time. <laughs> I don't think ever in my life. It's a real trait. Um, but I know that Stephen Pham worked with my co-editor, Justin Wolfers, on this piece for... Most of a year, I think, like it was, it took a very, very long time. And I think when you, which is why I think it's like such an extraordinary and bizarre and wonderful piece. Um, and I think when you spend so much time with a piece of writing, you tend to encourage work encourage or respond to work that complements it maybe?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's that's fascinating. So it's sort of like, you know, a scotoma or psychological blindness has been removed mm. and suddenly that's what you're seeing and latching onto. It's fascinating to think about, but also what I love in, in what you've just described is this, this time that people can spend on a piece of long form writing, you know, in this undercooked age where, you know, everyone's got takes on things that, that you know are deployed in under a second or so Uh, it's amazing to think about spending months you know perhaps even a year on a piece of writing you know going over it perfecting it thinking about what every word means and weighing that up Ginny I look forward to seeing what you come up with um, when you're curating (laughs) the next edition Uh, you know is there anything that you're really looking forward to at the moment yourself? Um, In terms of the brow? Yeah Uh,
2: well Oh, we're publishing the experimental nonfiction prize winner in the next issue uh which I've just finished up editing so that was very very exciting um I think the long list is definitely out I'm not sure about the short list yet but all those pieces really blew us away so that's yeah that's been an exciting ride.
1: <laughs> oh, Ginny, I would love to continue to talk to you, but my hour is nearly up here uh, on Triple R. Thank you so much for your wonderful piece in the Saturday paper. I hope it does provoke uh, more thought. Definitely get out there and read it. It's up online, uh, which is fantastic. The latest edition of the brow is out, and I very much look forward to the coming edition that you will be <laughs> a part of. I hope you will come and join us again. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much. Mm. 3 Triple R You've been listening to Backstory, the show about books, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. I'm Mel kranenberg and if you like what you've heard, you can listen to the live version of the show Wednesdays at twelve on Triple R. Join the stream on the Triple R website or subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcatcher. Thanks for listening. Join me again soon.
0: This has been a podcast from 3 R 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly
1: independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.